We are in chapter 3. I'm going to finish this next week. Next week is going to be important, so if you can make it, I want you to make it. Uh, It'll be a summation of 2 Peter, and it'll be very uh, vital as we end the year and start another year. And next week we'll be talking how we ought to live our lives, and we're going to be looking at uh, the last three foundational imperatives in Peter and just give us some insight in what we should do in the days in which we live, the difficult times, and how we should be faithful to Him and grow in Him and grace. So next week will be important if you can make it. Not that any week isn't, but uh, I just want you particularly to be here for next week as we, as we look forward to the new year and uh, growing in grace. But uh, this week I want to finish chapter uh, this section on uh, the second coming of Christ. Remember last week we divided this up into two sections. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 was was going to be the negative or the scoffers or the mockers' view of the second coming. We looked at that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And today we're going to be looking at the correct view of Christ's return. And we'll be looking at that in verses verses 8, 8 through 13. And then next week we'll finish it up with the moral imperatives and how we should live our lives and what kind of persons we ought to be. But last week, remember, we, uh, uh, we, we really emphasized that Peter did something uh, fairly unusual. He, he targeted an audience and he targeted the beloved. And we saw in verse 1, verse 8, verse 14, and verse 17 that, that Peter was very specific in who he was targeting. He is targeting the beloved. Those who have found grace in the eyes of God, those whom have been blessed by God, those who are, so- are sovereignly saved by God those who have been partakers of the divine mercies of God, as we've looked in in previous chapters and in the first book, those of us who have an inheritance, who are kept by the power of His might, those of us who have precious promises, that's the target audience. And so it applied specifically to Peter and the folks he was talking to, and it certainly applies to us in this day. So, So Peter's talking to us. And he also said he wanted to stir up our pure minds. And does anybody remember what we said, what pure minds meant? Does that mean that our minds are always perfectly pure, never have a taint of thought or any wicked thoughts? What did it mean when we talked about stir up your pure minds? Does anybody remember? Don't everybody speak at once. A mind that seeks to follow Christ and follow the Word. Uh, a, a regenerated mind. A mind that is free from heresy. Uh, a mind that is reverential toward God, seeks God, as, as, as Carol has said. So he is targeting us. We are beloved of God, beloved of Peter. And uh, we, he just wanted to stir up our pure minds. And he does this by reminding us about something. And what he's going to do is he's going to take these false prophets and these false teachers, and he's going to take one specific way in which they mock. And this mockery is a, is a purposeful rejection of Christ, specifically his promise that he's going to come again. It's a rejection of his word. It's a rejection of his deity. It's a rejection of who he is and his person. And, and Peter's what he's going to do is he's going to take this one specific issue 
of the mockery of Christ's second return, and he's going to take it, and he's going to show that the negative view which we talked about, and then he's going to tell us, his beloved, those who are elect, he's going to tell us how we should react to the mockers who we're going to run up against and to, and to Peter's uh, 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 attendees in his day whom, whom they were up against, the false teachers and the persecution. So that's where we're at. And we really summed it up with, with uh, that these mockers willfully forgot God's word and they forgot history. And Peter, what he does, he reminds them that God's judgment in the past, which was the flood, which they willfully forgot because they forgot God's word. And uh, so, but the, the judgment of the flood anticipates and guarantees a future judgment, which we're going to see today, which is going to be the judgment of the earth by fire and the renewal of the earth and the restoration of the earth. So that's going to be how we uh, ended it last week. But let's look at verse 8. As we look at the correct view of Christ's return, that we, His people, who have pure minds, who love Him, should have uh, regarding the specific promise of Christ's return. But beloved, verse eight, do not forget this one thing. That's the that's the promise of His coming. He talked about in verse four that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, which is the second coming in this in this context, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this is going to be the correct view of Christ's return. Those of you who were on Zoom can't see this, but on the board we have point number one, which is the Lord is sovereign over time. The Lord is sovereign over time. So that would be verse 8. Beloved, don't forget this one thing, that the one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. So there's different views on this that different commentators have had. In these next two verses, there are multiple views, there are multiple comments, there are multiple pages that you got to cipher through. But uh, uh, the Lord is sovereign over time, and it's taking the verse from from. Uh, the Psalm of Moses, which is Psalm 90. So if you turn to Psalm 90, as, as, as Moses remembers God's dealing with the nation of Israel in the past, as he deals with God's eternity and the frailty of men, he reminds the faithfulness of God, the creation of God, he reminds us of uh, that man will eventually die, that, that man is like a watch in the night, he's carried away like a flood. But then he looks at 90, chapter 90, verse 4, as he contrasts the eternality of God and the frailty of men. 
uh, he, he makes this statement, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past, and like a watch in the night you carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they're like grass, it grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it's cut down and withers. So in this contrast between the eternality of God... His eternal self-existence, the fact that He has never been created, He's always been and will always be, as that blows your brain cells this Sunday morning. He contrasts that with the frailty of men. God in His sovereignty has given man 70 years, and by reason of strength He's given 80. We understand that uh, those days were going to be difficult, the last days. But we understand that God has set a time limit on men in their life as a consequence of sins. But he, but when he says that a day is the Lord's is a thousand years, really simply means that uh, God is infinite, God is eternal, God transcends time and he transcends space, and God doesn't view time like we do. You know, we're limited and... And, you know, 15 minutes may be a long time to us, whereas God and time, time is irrelevant to him. He's Lord over it. He sees the end and he sees the beginning and he, and he causes things to occur that, that's going to accomplish his divine sovereign will. So it really, the primary meaning of this is that God is sovereign over time and that he doesn't see time as we do. Now, this is a simile. You know what a simile is? There's metaphors and similes, and a simile is like or as. So we see uh, in the verse it says, one day is as a thousand years. He uses this figure of speech as simile, and when we see similes in Scripture, we understand that they may or may not have a literal meaning. Generally, when we take Scripture, when it says, uh, the, the, the Lord is going to reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem. We take that literally. He didn't say like a thousand years. He says he's going to reign. So we take that literally uh, in our church. We take Scripture literally unless there's a simile like a metaphor like or as. So we can take this to be just a figure of speech that generalizes the sovereignty of God over time. And so I like what one commentator said. He said, And if you want to write this down, wonderful. What seems to us what God should do in a day takes him a thousand years. And what we think would take a thousand years, he does in a day. So he is able uh, to transcend time, and his time frame is different than ours. And and, uh, and so uh, so we have to be patient and we have to wait on him and understand he's sovereign over it, he's control over it, and he knows what's best. Some commentators have taken this verse, Psalm 90, verse 4, and they've taken it literally and they've tried to fit creation to here into this time frame. And so what they try to say and they've said and... Uh, uh, I think erroneously, but uh, uh, in some very, very serious-minded conservative commentators have taken this point of view. 
they take it and they say, well, creation, since creation, if you're a new earth type and you believe in the literal creation of the earth in a literal day, then creation is somewhere around 6,000 years old. 4,000 years before Christ, 2,000 years after Christ, that is 6,000 years. He created the earth in six days. So this seventh day is is the seventh dispensation. And so it is the day of rest. And so they take this literally mean... The creation has been here 6,000 years, and now it's about to be time for the seventh year, the the seventh thousandth year, the seventh day, the day of rest, the millennial of Christ. And they try to maneuver this. uh, So uh, some people do that. Some people I've seen, they take John 2-1. On the the third day, there's a wedding in Canaan. And say, well, that's 2,000 years uh, since Christ's return, and the third day is the is is that, and so that's the uh, that's the wedding supper of the Lamb, and all these are really bad hermeneutically, uh, really out of context, and I really don't take it as that, but but I take it generally. I think Terry would agree that this is just a specific notion that. Uh, that uh, that God is sovereign over time. Now, MacArthur, he sort of takes this and splits it. And MacArthur says it may, and I underline may. He doesn't say it is. He doesn't say it definitely isn't. But he says it may be an indication and a reference of the specific reference to the millennial kingdom when the Lord creates a new heaven and a new earth. He says may. He doesn't say dogmatically it is or it isn't. He sort of splits the hair between those who are who are very uh, conservative, uh, uh, general revelation, sovereignty of God over time, and those who are specific and say, well, that means this, it means that. I think we want to avoid that means this, that means that. Uh, I think you get in a lot of trouble with that. And uh, so we want to go go very conservatively. God is sovereign over time. And if you want to say, well, maybe it's referring as MacArthur, I'll let you do that. I personally do not. But but uh, I know lots of folks have lots of uh, great uh, thought toward him, and I do too. But uh, I think that's why he uses the word may. So uh, we'll leave it at that. So we see the correct view of Christ's return A is God is sovereign over it. He knows when it's going to occur, but it is certain as we'll look as we see this later. Now verse 9, which has given men heartburn for many years. I think if, if I were to, uh, uh, quantity, uh, if I were to just sort of understand as I chew on my cough drop, verses that men have had struggle with over the years, this is going to be in the top five. This verse, uh, it comes right after, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It comes right after, I can do all things through Christ. Uh, uh, taken out of context, meaning whatever it wants to mean, whatever I defy Christ. If Don't let get me started on that one. But this is a verse that really gives people a lot of heartburn. It is misunderstood. And, and primarily what I see is when people quote this verse to me, they only quote, God is not willing that any should perish. And they don't quote the whole verse, they don't quote it in context, and they use it uh, in their narrative of what it means that uh, for God to save men and whom He will and will not save and whom He intended to save or who He didn't intend to save. And they take it all and they mix it up and they take part of this verse. So what I want to do is is try to rightly divide it and say, put it right where it is in its context. Uh, so this verse uh, 
verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Talking about the promise that the scoffers are mocking in verse 4. The scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? So this is the promise that, that Peter is specifically talking about when he says the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. That word mean not slack. It's an interesting word. The word means that he's not late. The word means that he doesn't delay. He has a predetermined time. And in that predetermined time, he will send his son, Jesus, back to the earth uh, to accomplish his final plans for the earth. He's going to judge sin. He's going to finish up. Uh, and he's going to bind Satan. He's going to, Christ is going to rule and reign for a thousand years, we believe, on the earth from Jerusalem. And then he's going to uh, bring in and, utter, and, and usher in the eternal kingdom. So when it says uh, uh, he's not slack uh, concerning his promise, that means he's not delaying it. Uh, because he doesn't know when it's going to occur, but he has a purpose in why he's delaying it. It also means he's not loitering. He's not, uh, uh, you know, when you says do not loiter, you just can't hang out in the parking lot and be mischievous and cause trouble. He's not doing that. Uh, he has a purpose for why he's delaying his coming, and we're going to look at what that specific purpose is. So we see that Lord is faithful to his promises. Uh, I love the verse in Lamentations, uh, Lamentations uh, chapter uh, chapter 3, these are the uh, lamentations of Jeremiah over the city of Jerusalem that has been ransacked. The children of Israel have been taken into Babylonian captivity. And, uh, and Jeremiah is lamenting uh, the devastating effects of sin uh, in the lives of his people. And uh, he is in a difficult space. His soul is distraught. If you look at Lamentations 3.21, as we look at the Lord not being slack concerning His promises, it's because He's faithful. Look at verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. In his despair and his depression, he remembers uh, the emotions uh, I've got in my Bible may lie to us, but God's promises and His character never will. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. I hope in Him. Uh, Paul said that though we are faithless, He remains faithful. So this this fact that God is not slack concerning this promise is based upon the immutability of His character. It's based upon His faithfulness. It's based upon His promises are yea and true and amen and He cannot lie. So we can trust Christ and when He says He's going to return, which we looked at the many times He said that last week, He he is going to return. No matter what the mockers say, we are to have hope and we are to be encouraged because of what He's promised. So it says, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some, just because we have a view in our, in our minds that are, that are probably haughty, we think more highly of ourselves, we think that He should have come yesterday and we think perhaps He's going to come tomorrow. But we need to understand that He will come in the fullness of time. Just when, just when Jesus came in the fullness of time, 
Now, that time may not have been what we would have thought. Well, in the middle of Roman rule, in the middle of the disparity, in the middle of this, in the middle of that, in the middle of the time when Herod said he's going to kill the babies, Christ comes. But that's the fullness of time. That's when his time was right, and it was a perfect time, and so will his second coming be. It'll be a perfect time. It'll be a time that no one expects. It'll be a time when people are eating and drinking and and having pleasure and giving in marriage, when men are not ready, when men are found faithless. He's going to come in an unexpected time, and he's going to come uh, and we're going to see that in a second. But when it said he's not slack concerning his promises, we understand that slackness is based upon his character, his immutability, and who he is and his faithfulness. And then it says, here's, here's where we're going to get into uh, differences of opinion. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some can sound slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. So he's not only not slack, but he's long-suffering toward us. Some versions say usward. Some versions say you. But we need to understand who he's talking about. Who is God in his patience, in his kindness, in his faithfulness? Who is he being long-suffering toward? The answer is who? What's the answer? To us. Believers. So the primary focus of this verse is not a, a uh, just a complete discussion of God's salvation to men and, and all of the different parameters of it and different idiosyncrasies in it, but it's a specific long-suffering towards us regarding His second coming. So He's talking about His long-suffering toward us, us as I've indicated many times, is the beloved in chapter 3. The us is the is uh, chapter 1, verse 4, those who are partakers of the divine nature. The us or ch- is chapter 1, verse 1, those who have obtained like precious faith by the righteousness of our God, that grace has been multiplied to us. The us is First Peter. Uh, chapter 1, the same target audience to the pilgrims of the dispersion, to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. The us are the, those who have been given the precious promises, who have a living hope in chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 6. We're kept by God's power, and we have an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled. And those of us who goes through various trials, that the genuineness of the faith. So he's talking about his long-suffering toward us. The primary meaning of this is that God's promises are to us. And he's long-suffering toward us. So that is the, the primary context, the primary meaning of this verse is that Christ is long-suffering toward us. Okay? And then it goes on to explain, not willing that any of us should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance. One of the primary reasons why God has delayed His second coming in that He is still gathering His sheep into the sheepfold. Okay? Christ came to do the Father's will, it tells us in John chapter 6. And the Father's will is that He, all that He died for will come to Christ. And so, 
God is still in process of gathering his sheep from every nation, tribe, and kingdom. We do not know who his sheep are, so we effectually, hopefully, we fervently, hopefully, preach the invitation to come into him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. We are, we have the, we have the authority by Christ been delegated to us and we have the obligation and we are to be obedient to the command to preach the gospel to all men. It is not for us to determine whom they are, but we are to preach the gospel faithfully. It is not us who will bring those people into the kingdom, but it is God through us as his instruments of instrumentality, right? So we do not, like some churches do, we don't preach the gospel, we don't cast our pearls before swine, we don't do this, we don't do that. That's evil, that we don't evangelize men, that we assume wrongly that uh, he doesn't use men to bring people into the kingdom. He does. So we preach the truth boldly, confidently, that God will save a people out of this earth. And we are to be useful in that, and that's the means he's ordained. How are men going to hear if they don't have a preacher, right? So Terry and, 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 and brothers of his ilk who are called to be pastors faithfully preach the truth, as all of us are called to be witnesses and to disciple men. So... This verse gives us confidence that God is waiting and that he will, long-suffering, he will bring all of his people into the sheep. That does not relieve us of the responsibility, but it gives us confidence that it's not us, it's him who will save a people. But we're to be faithful. Everybody understand that truth? Any comments or questions? He's long-suffering toward us, his people, and he is waiting for all of his people. He will bring all of his people into the sheepfold. That is the primary meaning of the text. Uh, one of my commentators said, Peter's Christian readers must realize that the apparent delay of divine judgment is a sign of God's forbearance and mercy toward them. So all of us have lost loved ones. I have a daughter. Some of you have sisters, some of you have moms and dads, some of you have grandpas, grandmas, every relative. Some of you have dear friends that are lost. And it is God's mercy that they are still able to hear the gospel. And it may be that you are the one whom will lead them to Christ. And so we have great hope for that, that our loved ones are part of the family of God and that he will save them eventually. And that's why he's long-suffering. And we're thankful for that. That's his mercy, right? And so when those of us who are very, very keen on uh, knowing the end times and have taught it for 30 years and just come quickly, Lord Jesus, and those of us who have a great tendency to go, I'm a little disappointed. Haven't you know that type of? Just be honest. It's because he's merciful and he hasn't gathered all of his people in yet. Okay, so we have a great confidence in that. That's the primary meaning of that. I, I think uh, I like what this commentator said. The any must refer to those whom the Lord has chosen and will call to complete the redeemed, the us. Since the whole passage is about God destroying the wicked, his patience is not so he can save all of the wicked, but so he can receive all his own. He can't be waiting for everyone to be saved since the emphasis is that he will destroy the world and the ungodly. Those who 
do perish and go to hell, go because they are depraved and worthy only of hell and have rejected the only remedy, Jesus Christ. The path to condemnation is a path of a non-repentant heart and it is a path of one who rejects the person and provision of Jesus Christ and holds on to his sin. So we see, I think that's an excellent understanding, the primary meaning of this text. So if someone says, well, God's not willing that any should perish, you go to the whole text with them, you go to the context of the text, and you understand the primary meaning of the text. Everybody understand the primary. And I emphasize that a bunch of times because that's the primary. However... There is a secondary meaning of this text. It's not the primary meaning, but it has a very, very good application to us. The secondary meaning of this, and here's some truths. If you're writing these down, if you're not, the secondary meaning of this text, when someone asks you about this, when they take it out of context, you explain to them, you, you say this, and I, and I say this, and it, and it helps them understand. A lot of people have a heartburn about God being sovereign in salvation. They, that offends them. So I take this verse when people take it out of context, and I go back and I say, you're right in a lot of ways. And this is what I say. There are truths in this text that I want, to, I, I want you to understand. Number one truth, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. That is from Ezekiel 33.11. And then I'll, I'll read this to you. Ezekiel 33.11. We want people to understand that God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Look what he says uh, this is the great text of, of Ezekiel being a watchman. And, and he's calling God to be a warner of his people. And he says, if you warn people and they don't come, you're innocent. But if you don't warn people, you're guilty and the blood's on your hands. So we need to be faithful to witness and to share the truth with men. But, G, but God says... In this context, Ezekiel 33, verse 11, say to them, he's talking about the wicked. Uh, he's talking about the lost house of Israel, and he's talking about all the wicked in general, the Gentiles. God says, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn, that means repent, repent from your evil works, or why should you die? So when it says takes no pleasure, the word is very important you understand. It's a, it's a Hebrew word, it's H-A-P-E-S. I don't know how to pronounce it. Terry just already left, so I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm assuming it's, I don't know, hapes? I don't know. It's H-A-P-E-S. There's an abbrevi- There's an accent marked over the A and the E, if any of you who know e- uh, Hebrew. But the word literally means God does not delight in. He doesn't get pleasure from. He's not up there in heaven going, all right, another wicked man has gone to hell. He's not up there going, all right. He doesn't think that way. He, he's a God of love. Okay. And he doesn't, hate is not who he is. It is a, it is a result of offense against his holiness, who he is. So he doesn't take pleasure in the, in the delight in the wicked perishing. It grieves him. 
Okay? Scripture says it grieves him that men perish. And he hates that men perish. But they perish because they don't come to Christ. And we could talk about that all day. But, but the primary point of this is God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He does it. He's not pleased with it. It's not what he prefers, uh, if you'll let me say that. And so we need to understand, what does it mean then that God is not willing that any should perish? Uh, it doesn't mean this. When it says God is not willing that any should perish, it doesn't mean that God can't control and that He does things against His will and that things happen without Him being able to do anything about it. So when it says He's not willing that any should perish, so if people perish, people say, well, if God's not willing that any perish, how come they perished? And so does that mean that God couldn't do anything about it? Is God, is God a gentleman that won't go against a man's will or heart? Is he just, he's not going to make anybody be saved or he's not going to, what, what is that? So people take that wrongly and they say, well, if God's not willing that any should perish and people perish, then that must mean that God wasn't able to do anything about it. That's not what that means at all. Uh, it simply, uh, it simply means that, uh, there are, and get this, there are two wills of God. Deuteronomy 29.29. Let's look at Deuteronomy 29.29. When it says He's not willing that any should perish, we need to understand this about God. 29.29. And if you are confused, don't be don't be frustrated because this has been a debate among Christians for 2,000 years. And there are differences of opinion within Christendom. 29.29 Deuteronomy. Moses speaking. Actually, God is speaking through the pens of, of Moses. The secret things belong to our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us, to our children forever, that we may do all the works of the law. Two wills of God. Secretive will and it's called declarative will. Now that declarative will is called various things throughout Scripture. It's called moral will. It's called revealed will. God's revealed will is what it says in His Word. And, and He says, I command all men everywhere to repent. That's God's revealed, declarative, moral will he desires men to repent, and He calls men to repent. He commands men to repent. That's His revealed will, okay? We see that in Acts 17.30. Uh, it is commanded, God commands all men, all men everywhere to repent. That's His, that's his revealed will, okay? Uh, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's His revealed will. If you are thirsty, He says, Come. Okay? That's His revealed will that men come when they're thirsty. That's His revealed will. Uh, the revealed will, if you're writing this down, can be resisted. And it is resisted every single day. The revealed will of God, the Word of God, is resisted by men every day. Men are free moral agents, and they make their choices. They're not uh, puppets. They're not forced, but God in His grace changes men, but He doesn't force men. And so, He brings men to Himself, 
And men are volunteers when he changes their hearts and brings them to himself. But the revealed will of God, the declarative will of God, the moral will of God is that all men should repent and come to him. Okay? But men do resist that will. And so when it says he's not willing that any should perish, that's his revealed will, desiring men to come to him, but they do not come. That's resistible. That's will number one. That's the primary meaning of this, of this, of this truth. The second thing is the secretive will of God. The secretive will of God is irresistible. And it is an inward call of the Spirit. And it cannot be resisted. When God calls you, you come. If it's the inward, secretive call of God toward His people. The outward call, coming to me all you who are weary, is a revealed, can be resisted, but the secretive will of God will always be accomplished. So, when you look at this verse, you see that God's revealed will is that all men come, and some men don't come, they resist the will, but the secretive will of God will always be accomplished. And when it says God's not willing that any should perish, that is referring to the revealed will of God, not the secretive will of God. Any questions about that? Anything you would like me to explain better? Any different viewpoint that you may have? I'm welcome to hear it. <coughs> Yes, the revealed will is the outward call of God. It is general. The secretive is an inward call, and it is an irresistible call. So when He called you, when His Holy Spirit regenerated your wicked heart, Carol, you came willingly because He changed you and gave you a new desire, and you followed Him. You may have struggled. You may have kicked and screamed, and you may have ran away just like Jonah did, but Jonah did what God wanted to do. When when Moses, I mean, when, when Paul was going to Damascus to kill Christians, when that light shone on him, he says, Paul, I'm going to show you what you're going to do. And he'd said, I didn't resist the call. And then he later explained, when it pleased God to call me from my mother's womb, I went. And so all of us whom been called... From the foundation of the earth, we went when he called us, and we praise God that he did. Right, Dwayne? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Good. Yes. Yes, that's the primary meaning of the text. The primary meaning of the text, as Melanie reminded us, is that none of his people should perish. But he has a revealed will and he commands all men. This also, one guy was rating, and I think his name, I don't remember, I don't want to give a name, uh, because a lot of people, you may like him, and I don't want to, I don't want to make you cringe, but he said it implies a universal salvation. That is not true. God has never been, uh, he, he has never, uh, he's always known there would be lost folks. Uh, that's why he sent his son. And this is not an implication that all men are going to be saved. When it says he, he doesn't, he's not willing that all should perish does not apply that <clears throat> at the end of the day, God's going to say, I'm going to save everybody. <clears throat> he never goes against his character. And this is not an implication that all men are going to be saved. It's not that at all. Yes, sir. 
No, no, it is not. Religion is man's pursuit of God, man's way. Just like the Tower of Babel, they wanted to approach God their way, and God told them this is the way it's going to be, and they did it anyway, and so that's always been the foundational problem of men. They approach God. That's what religion is, man approaching God his way. So good point, Dwayne. Thank you for that. So we see that uh, these promises of God, the correct way to view is that He's sovereign over time and He's sovereign over salvation. He loves men. He doesn't take pleasure in their death. But he, he wills that His people be saved. They will be saved. And He is long-suffering. And He hasn't come back again because there are still sheep that are going to come into the sheepfold. Primary meaning of the text. Thirdly, the day of the Lord, verse 10... The day of the Lord, as we look at the, the correct way to look at this uh, second coming of Christ as opposed to the scoffers, we see the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervor and heat. The earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. First of all, what does the day of the Lord mean? What does this phrase, day of the Lord, mean? Uh, one commentator said, It is a day of special intervention of God in human history for judgment. I.e., the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is pictured as a day of God specially intervening in the judgment of the earth. The flood is the day of the Lord. It was a special interventionary day of God against the wicked as He judged them. The The... The d- destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was a special intervention of God for a specific uh, specific reason for judgment upon that wicked city. Okay, so these are special interventions of God in history, and we see that. So when Scripture says a day of the Lord, it means that. It also means it's a day. Uh, it's not a single event, but it is progressive. It's not a single event. It doesn't have to be a single event. It can be a progressive day, and it can be used to warn men. And we look at Scripture to understand that. So when it says the day of the Lord, it can mean many things. It can mean a specific act. Happens right there, boom, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. And it can mean uh, a progressive work, a warning work that's going to be there to warn men this is what's going to happen. And that's the predominant use of it in the Old Testament. In, the, in, in today's reality, we see it. World War One, World War Two is a special interventionary act of God upon the judgment of men. The Holocaust... I say this with with great reverence and fear as a special intervention of God that he allowed six million Jews to be killed. And we go, that is, if we accept God is sovereign in all things, he's sovereign in that too. He had a specific reason for that, and the reason for that is that his people... Those who were really his would come to repentance. Those that died predominantly were wicked men. Not all of them were, but those that was a judgment on the nation of Israel. You know, when they said, uh, let his blood be upon us and on our children, there is an example of specific misguided emotional that led, it came back to nipple. 
And that is a horrible thing. But we see that. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, the predominant way, like I said, is warning. Look at, uh, at Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is filled with this day of the Lord uh, terminology. And this is uh, what Peter is talking about. This day of the Lord, this final day of the Lord of intervention that is progressive. And we see that this day of the Lord is occurring now. I'm saying now because it is it is it is the birth pangs that we're going through now as a nation and as a world. Pestilences, famines, earthquakes, uh, volcanic eruptions, signs in the stars and the skies, waves uh, rolling in the seas, and the preponderance of hurricanes in men's hearts. These are all. Uh, preparatory for the final judgment, and it is a progressive. It's going to get worse, and it's going to happen more and more frequently. So the day of the Lord is beginning now. It's going to proliferate in the tribulation, which is Revelation 6 through 18, and then it'll finally going to accumulate, <clears throat> finally going to end in some ways, at the end of the tribulation, when God, when Jesus Christ returns and billions are killed through the tribulation at the end, and then it will finally be revealed at the end of the millennium as God continues to restore and he continues to warn of judgment. Eventually, one day after the millennium, God is going to destroy Satan completely. He's going to, and then he is going to restore the earth and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll get to that in a second. But this day of the Lord is progressive and it is occurring today. And it will continue to occur in more and more frequency and in more and more painful developments. Look at Isaiah 2. I'm not going to read all of this because it's lengthy, but i just give you an idea uh, 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 let's look at chapter 2. Let's start at verse 10. This is his warning to the nation of Israel about this eventual, and it's called a day of the Lord in verse 12. Look at verse 10. Enter into the rock, hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty. The lofty looks of man will be humbled. The haughtiness of men will be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. There's the day of the Lord. And then the next verse, For the day of the Lord of hosts will come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and everything will be brought low. Look at verse 17. Chapter 2 of Isaiah, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, the haughtiness of men shall be brought low, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, that's the day of the Lord, but the idols he will utterly abolish. So we see this example. Look at Isaiah 13, as we look at some different verses (coughs) that warn us of this impending time of intervention of God, and it shows it specifically that it's progressive and that it is a warning and that it may not all happen at one time. Look at chapter 13, uh, verse 6. For wait, wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. All hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows 
will take hold of them. They will be as pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. The day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy the sinners from it. Warning, warning, warning. It's all in Joel chapter 1, chapter 2. It's in Amos chapter 5. It's in Zechariah chapter 14. This warning of the day of the Lord. And we see that it is continuing and will continue. And that's what Peter is saying in this context. The day of the Lord. Everybody understand the day of the Lord and what it is and what it isn't. But it is today it is warning and it is getting closer and closer. And we are seeing the birth pangs now. Now notice that it says in verse 10, four times it says will come. Now, when something says will come, we see this in chapter 10, verse 10. Look what it says. Will come as a thief in the night. Will pass away with a great noise. Will melt with a fervent heat. And will be burned up. What does that word will mean? And why is it used four different times in that one verse? Absolute. It is a certainty. It doesn't say might. It doesn't say could. It doesn't say perhaps will. It doesn't say should. It says it will. So we can say with absolute certainty there is no possibility that it won't happen. So it will come. The earth will pass away. The elements will melt. And everything will be burned up. So we see the certainty that this day of the Lord will come. And that is to be our attitude toward the second coming of Christ. Not the mocker's attitude that nothing's changed. Everything's the same. God's really not going to come again. And we are going to die. And we're going to turn into dust. And this eternity and all the things we've been warned about is false teaching. So that's their viewpoint, their thinking. But when it says, will pass away, uh, it will come as a thief in the night, that is, what is it when a thief comes? Tell me why he uses the analogy of a thief. Any ideas? You don't know when they're coming. It's unexpectedly. Scripture tells that if you knew if a thief was coming, you would prepare yourself. You would lock your doors, you would sit up with your uh, 9mm Glock, and you'd be ready for him to come in the door, right? But this, him coming as a thief, is, is the reaction to the lost people. To the lost people. That's the reaction of the lost because it's unexpected. They don't believe he's coming. He's been mocked. If you look at Hollywood, if you look at the liberal left, if you look at the politicians, there's a mockery of God and Christ. And there is a, there is a, there is a legitimate, purposeful, uh, desire on their, to suppress the truth. That's what scripture says. They suppress the truth and they believe the lie and they're deceived. And uh, so we see that playing out today, and it, just like in Peter's day. And so it's going to come upon them, and it's going to come unexpectedly, and sadly it's going to come. They're not going to be prepared. 
It's like, remember the parable of the ten virgins? Five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. The five wise virgins had uh, their lamps filled with oil, which represents the Holy Spirit, and they are ready for His coming. They are busy serving Him, being obedient, being faithful servants. The five foolish virgins didn't have any oil in their lamps, and when He came, they said, let me have some of yours, and the response was, You should have been ready, okay? So it comes as a thief. And so this coming of Christ comes as a thief to the lost. But to us, it should not come as a thief in the night. That we should be prepared. And next week, we're going to talk about how to be prepared and what manner of people we should be in our way we live our lives. But if you will look uh, back at uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul contrasts the attitude and the readiness of lost people from unsaved people. And he says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 3. This is going to be the attitude of the lost. For they say, peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day, the day of the Lord, should overtake you like a thief. You are sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night, nor we are darkness. We should not sleep as others do, but we should be watchful and sober. Okay, so... God didn't appoint us to wrath, so we are to be faithful, and we are to be expectant. We are to look up, for our redemption draws nigh, and we're to look forward to it. So it is not supposed to take us as a thief in the night, and so I would ask you, are you ready for His return? Are you being faithful? Are you prepared in your heart? Are you clothed in Christ's righteousness? Or are you... Uh, a mocker? Are you someone who says, where is this coming? Gosh, it's been 2,000 years. I've been hearing this for years and blah, blah, blah. And when are you going to stop using this crutch that one day you're going to be raptured? Well, all this, and I've heard it a thousand times, okay? But we're to be faithful and we're to continue. So it's a thief in the night. The next one, it will come as a thief and it will pass away with a great noise. That word great noise means two things. The one thing that it means is a hissing sound, like the sound of an arrow. Have you ever seen an arrow whizzes by you? So this this, uh, passing away with a great noise, it means like a whizzing of an arrow. And it also means like the crackling of fire. You've been around a fire, you hear it popping and cracking. And so this word literally means a whizzing or a cracking. So like an, like an arrow that you don't hear it until it's past you. You, man, you know that? You hear it and it's already gone. It's already past your head or wherever, your target or if you're standing too close or whatever. But the crackling of the fire, we've heard the crackling of the fire and we know uh, all of that. So, uh, so this, the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief. The heavens will pass away. Uh, the word uh, heavens, we're talking about the physical universe. We're talking about the, the stars, the moon. We're talking about the sun. We're talking about the firmament, the sky. Uh, and then we're talking about uh, much difference of opinion in this. Uh, the word elements, 
it's going to pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt. That word elements. Uh, various opinions. Some say that it's the sun, moon, and the stars. They, that's the elements. That's not what the elements are. Uh, the word is in Greek. It's uh, uh, stochia, S-T-O-I-C-H-E-I-A. And it means the elemental substances that constitute matter. So when it says that the, the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt, the foundational elements of, of the building blocks of all physical things will melt away. So that means the atoms, the protons, the neutrons, the electrons are going to disintegrate. God sustains, tells us in Colossians that, that Christ sustains all things. All elements and all proteins are held together by Him. And so when He releases that and He disintegrates that, it will all come apart and disintegrate. Okay, and so, and it says that it's going to come as a thief, and when it says the elements are going to burn up, it's not just the elements of, you know, used to be the, 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 the Greeks taught that the elements were, were what? Uh, earth, air, water, and fire. So, but think about it. So, fire is going to destroy fire. So, that doesn't really make sense, does it? The elements are the building blocks of, 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 of what is physical. So, it's the pro, it's everything that, that is the building blocks of our cells or the basing, or protons, electrons. So, all of that, it says it's going to melt, it's going to disintegrate and cease to be, right? Everybody understand that? It is complete, it's going to be a complete destruction, but it's not going to be annihilation, and then it will be a resuscitation and a renewal when the new heavens, it will be built back better without sin and will be built built perfectly. So that's what Scripture teaches. And then when it says that the works are going to be burned up, uh, the most common view of that is that the, 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 the heart's, of men are going to be exposed. All of our motives, our thoughts. Remember it talks about the, the beam of judgment of Christ when all of our works are going to be burned up if they're not done with the right motivation. And the only thing that's going to be left is salvation, which is in Christ. So that's the same viewpoint that the works are going to be laid bare. Men's hearts are going to be opened up. He is going to discern everything. Everything that's been hidden is going to be exposed. And so we see the final day of the Lord. All things are going to be laid bare. And then some say it literally means burn up. But I think that's a, uh, it just said that in the verse above it. So this is really predominant meaning that men's motivations and hearts, thoughts are going to be exposed for what they are. And they're going to be shown lacking without Christ. So uh, that's the attitude we should have as believers about the second coming of Christ. And I hope that encourages you. Uh, we are going to be mocked and we are going to be uh, made fun of by family members, uh, by critics, by employers, by employees. By, but uh, we're to have the correct view that God is sovereign and He is coming again. Anybody have any comments? Next week, well, I want to finish this. So if you want to read for homework over the holidays, uh, read uh, 
read verses uh, 13 through 18. We'll look at, look at these 11 through 18, excuse me, 11 through 18, and we'll look at these. Thank you for coming. Anybody have anything to offer or add to this?